So let's cultivate our motivation. And whenever there's a group of people, there's a purpose behind their meeting and being together. So when we're listening to Dharma teachings, it's important that we are unified in our motivation, in our purpose. And since everybody here really respects and admires bodhicitta, the aspiration to attain full awakening in order to benefit all sentient beings most effectively. Since we all admire and respect that motivation, even if we don't have that spontaneous motivation right now, we can cultivate it. It becomes... uh, artificial, so to speak, but it's planting the seeds of actually having bodhicitta in our mind, and that unites us as a group for a common purpose. So we're not here to pass the time or to become some big spiritual person who's very famous. We're all here because we have compassion for living beings and a wish to be of service and benefit to them. So generate that motivation before we begin. So today we did uh, Posada, our Confession and Restoration of Precepts, uh, as the first day of the Shikshamana training program. Yeah, so we came here, and first thing we did, we purified and we restored our precepts. So we're fresh and ready to go. <laughs> okay. So we've been, uh, on Friday nights, uh, right now we've been on the third volume of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion called Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. And specifically, we've been on in the chapter called Revolving in Cyclic Existence, which is going through the, the 12 links of dependent origination about how we take rebirth, in cyclic existence and how we can free ourselves from that. So we started a couple of weeks ago with the first of the 12 links, which is ignorance. Yeah, And uh, we've started exploring what ignorance is a little bit, and we'll continue today. There's... um, some technical information in here, you know, from the the different tenant systems and their different positions. So 
you know, if you're just walking into this teaching, everything may not be crystal clear to you. Uh, and that's okay. You know, uh, take what you can from it and we'll keep going as we learn more in the future. But before we go back to ignorance, okay, there was a question last week about um, stream enterers and bodhisattvas and so on, and if they uh, take rebirth with the um, under the influence of the first link of ignorance and whether they create the karma that cre- they create f- the second link, formative action, which is specific karma to be that can propel a rebirth in cyclic existence. So, you know, last week I, uh, we had one thought about it, but I thought about it some more. And uh, I couldn't find any references that said that stream enters um, created karma in, in their life as a stream enterer, once they attained stream entry, to, to, that would propel a rebirth in samsara. Okay, so that one sentence that I said last week to revise doesn't need to be revised. Okay. Um, about bodhisattvas, yeah, when they attain the path of seeing that, when they have the direct realization of reality, um, they may attain a mental body. Okay, so a mental body is uh, the causes for a mental body are uh, unpolluted karma and the latencies of ignorance. So unpolluted karma is called the uh, mindfulness of the intention um, that is the subtle effort supporting the motivation to assume the mental body. Okay, so it's the, um, here, let me, might be better if I read it. The book is probably more legible than my handwriting. Okay. So this is explained in Courageous Compassion, which is volume six. So we're jumping ahead a little bit, but it's going to clarify this point. Um, Okay, I'm just going to read this whole section. On the path of seeing, bodhisattvas completely overcome acquired afflictions. So those are the ones that you learn from uh, false philosophies and things, those kind of wrong views. Their innate afflictions are weakened so that uh, without these gross impediments, their great compassion easily expands and intensifies. So this is for the bodhisattvas. However, if the influence of the realization of emptiness wanes, bodhisattvas on the first seven grounds may still experience manifest afflictions. Okay, so they still have ignorance, you know, they've eliminated the acquired ignorance, but the innate ignorance is still there. And if their understanding of the nature of reality begins to fade away in the break time, you know, between different meditation sessions, then manifest afflictions can arise. Okay, however, 
These afflictions are weak. They don't disturb the minds of the bodhisattvas or create karma. So they're very weak afflictions, not strong enough to create any kind of karma, especially the strong kind of karma that's necessary to throw a rebirth in samsara. And these um, afflictions are easily neutralized by bodhisattva's wisdom and compassion. So Arya bodhisattvas create only unpolluted karma. They may still have on their mind streams the seeds of polluted karma from before they became Aryas. Polluted karma means karma created under the influence of ignorance. So not all those karmas have been purified. Okay. The, okay. Then fundamental vehicle learner Aryas. So these are the hearers and solitary realizers or shravakas and solitary realizers. Uh, they may still experience the unpleasant results of previously created destructive karma. So, you know, they may get a stomach ache or, you know, step on a nail and it hurts or, uh, you know, get the COVID vaccine and get sick. Or they may not. Okay. Um, So Arya Bodhisattvas, however, experience neither physical nor mental suffering because of the power of their wisdom and compassion. Okay, so they don't experience physical suffering by the power of their compassion, uh, by the power of their wisdom, and they don't experience mental suffering by the power of their compassion. Okay, since virtuous karma uh, that ordinary beings create is considered polluted, you know, it's created under the influence of ignorance, and is not a direct cause of awakening, the question arises, what happens to the seeds of this virtuous karma when the person becomes an Arya? Okay, so today we did our posada, we created... Uh, virtuous karma, we had class, we, we did meditation practice, we created virtuous karma, but we are ordinary beings, and so even though this karma was virtuous, it was still polluted because we still have ignorance, and everything we looked at and thought about uh, when creating this virtue, um, you know, chances are we we easily grasped it as inherently existent, okay? So just grasping inherent existence itself is not negative. Ignorance and a view of the perishing aggregates is neutral. It's not negative, but, and we can create virtuous karma under its influence, but that karma results in samsara, even though we may have the determination to be free or fabricated bodhicitta or something like that, okay? So then, so that's like the karma, I don't know about you, but that I created today, yeah? So then what happens sometime in the future when we become Aryas, we still have the seeds of those polluted karmas on our mind stream, okay? 
So they, they are gradually transmuted into seeds of unpolluted karma as the power of the Arya Bodhisattva's realizations and excellent qualities increases. So not all is lost. Okay, uh, they were created as polluted karmas. They get transmuted into unpolluted when the mind becomes more and more unpolluted. Okay, so in the uh, so we're going to see the practice of Arya Bodhisattvas. Um, when we look at it, you'll see the ex- the power and capability of their great compassion and wisdom. This gives us confidence that our compassion and wisdom, when continuously cultivated, will likewise expand exponentially. So that's good, huh? So here's more about the mental body. Okay. So first ground bodhisattvas attain a mental body. Oh, that's footnote 97. So this is the view of Tsongkhapa, and his uh, one of his primary disciples, Kajip J. Uh, and they say that the bodhisattvas on the first through the seventh grounds, so they still have the afflictive obscurations. They can attain a mental body if they exert effort. But only Shravaka arhats and pure ground bodhisattvas effortlessly attain a mental body. So attain a attain a mental body, you have to have eliminated the afflictive obscurations. Okay. It to attain it effortlessly. If you you can still attain it if you still have the afflictive obscurations, but with effort. Okay, for bodhisattvas. But uh it looks like for the yeah, Shravaka Arhats and Pure Ground Bodhisattvas. Pure Ground are uh, the seventh, the eighth, ninth, and tenth grounds. Okay, so some of you may not have heard all this detailed information before. That's okay. You're just learning. There's different stages of Bodhisattvas and different realizations and different purifications of certain uh, afflictions at different stages. You know. Uh, Some people will understand it. Some people, you'll understand it eventually. Okay, it needs some background. Okay, so then... So the causes of a mental body are unpolluted karma. And here it says, in this context, unpolluted karma refers to the mental factor of intention. So that's one of the five omnipresent mental factors. Uh, the mental factor of intention, free from the influence of afflictive obscurations. Okay, so the intentions of the Shravaka Arhats and the pure ground Bodhisattvas. Okay, so this is also uh, said to be the mental factor of unpolluted karma, the mental factor of intention that is the subtle effort supporting the motivation to assume a mental body. That's one of the causes. And the other cause is what's called the base of the latencies of ignorance, which just means the latencies of ignorance. Yeah. Okay. Which is the, cog- uh, which is the cognitive obscurations that give rise to the subtle dualistic view. 
Here we see that in both Tantra and Sutra, Bodhisattvas attain a similitude of a Buddha's form body before attaining Buddhahood. Okay, so the the mental body is a similitude of a Buddha's uh, form body. Okay, so this is volume six. We're still on volume three. You know, we'll kind of grow and then we'll understand this more. But there, there it is. It clarifies from last week. Okay. What? Um, okay, some of it was page 275, the first part I read. The next part was 295, and the footnotes, the two footnotes were on 410. Okay? So, that's the questions remaining from last week. And we'll continue on. Okay. So we're, here we're going to talk about uh, some of the positions of the other uh, philosophical tenet schools. So the Vaivasikas, Sautantrikas, Chittamatrans, and Svatantrikas say first link ignorance. So remember, first link ignorance isn't all ignorance. It's the grasping at inherent existence uh, primarily of the person will get into some schools also include uh, the grasping uh, at of they have different versions of the self-grasping of a phenomena. We'll get into that. Um, okay. So the Vibhasikas, Sautantrikas, Chittamantras, and Svatantrikas Say the first link, ignorance, which is ignorance that is powerful enough to propel us to take another rebirth in samsara. Okay, this ignorance, according to those four tenant systems, is uh, grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay, so that's, yeah... Because they, remember, these lower schools for this self of person, they don't, you know, claim, uh, well, they, they say that persons inherently exist. Okay, so, so that's why they uh, say that, you know, they, they wouldn't say that ignorance grasps an inherently existent person because they say... Uh, the people are inherently existent. Okay. So what they're negating is the self-sufficient, substantially existent person, which is a person which is different from the aggregates. Okay. So the body and mind are one thing. The person is another thing. Yeah. So, so this, so they claim these schools claim that that ignorance is the root of samsara that must be eliminated to attain liberation. Chittamadrans and Svatantrikas also insert, assert self-grasping of phenomena that must be eliminated to attain full awakening. So they have different objects that you have to refute for to attain uh, liberation to and to attain awakening. Okay, so um, 
the first two schools, the Vaivasikas and the Sau Tantrikas, they don't assert a self grasp, uh, yeah, a self grasping of phenomena, just a self grasping of persons. The Chitta Madras and Svatantrikas assert two self graspings, one of persons, one of phenomena. What the Chitta Madras and Svatantrikas assert as the self grasping of phenomena is different. Okay. They differ from each other, and both of them differ from the prasangikas. Okay, so this is this is why um, having teachings on the tenant systems is very very helpful. Yeah, and uh, although I must say that the first time I don't know about other people, but the first time I studied the tenant systems. <laughs> what are these people talking about? I mean, it's just full of terminology, and who negates what, and and you just like I don't even know what these terms refer to. Yeah, so it's very helpful in, in this kind of stuff to hear these teachings repeatedly. Yeah, you have to hear them repeatedly because we just don't get it at the first time. It's like if you're studying any kind of, um, you know, profession. Each, every profession has its own vocabulary, okay? So, you know, if I went to a conference of, you know, people in the healthcare of, like, doctors, I would hear, I would understand the word disease, curable, incurable, and then everything else sounds like isis and, um, you know, all these funny kind of names. You know, you take me to a conference of pharmacologists, uh, you know, I mean, why can't these people talk English? It's like all the, you know, when they name medicine, why do you have to have a six-syllable name for a simple pill? Just give it one syllable, you know, call it duh. <laughs> you know, something that the rest of us can remember. But no, there's medicine, you know, there's the common medicine and then the what other the general and they all have different names that you can never remember at least i can never remember you send me to a conference of lawyers i'm also equally lost okay yeah I'm like huh what are these people i was reading the by uh, one collection of of uh, things about uh, ruth bader ginsburg and some of her writings and people. And it was, I mean, I understood a little bit of it, but the rest was like, I don't know. And now they're talking about, I don't know if it's called stare decisis or starry decisis. It means, I think, precedent. Why don't they just say precedent? You know? Um, well, no, that has to have some kind of Latin, Greek, or I don't know. Okay, so. I'm not putting those people down because if they came here and we started talking about tenants, they would go, what in the world are you people gra- talking about? And, you know, what is Vipassaka, Satantrika, Chidamajans, and Svatantrika? Why can't you talk English? Okay, so it's the, it's the same problem, yeah? So we can all have compassion for each other. 
you know, and find some some way to communicate uh, about things in common, like uh, cookies and crackers, <laughs> you know, something everybody understands, fruit. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so the Chitta Madras and Svatantrikas also assert self-grasping of phenomena that must be eliminated to attain full awakening. Okay, so then you say, well, wait a minute. They say, ignorance, refuting a self-sufficient, substantially existent um, person is what you have to eliminate to become an arhat. Um, and that's, that's the root of samsara, that, that ignorance, that grasping. But wait a minute, now you're talking about a self-grasping of persons uh, that is not talking about that kind of person. So what's going on here, okay? So do you have two roots of samsara? Yeah. No, there's one root of samsara, yeah, the, that the grasping of the self-sufficient, substantially existent person, and that's the root of samsara. The ultimate root of samsara is the self-grasping of phenomena, according to these two schools. Okay? So to get out of rebirth in samsara, you just have to negate or refute the self-sufficient, substantial existent person. But to get to attain Buddhahood, according to these two schools, then they have to, you have to refute their self of phenomena, which is the final or ultimate root of samsara. So what is that for the Chitta Madrans? The ignorance grasping a self of phenomena that is the final root of samsara hold subjects and objects to be different entities and holds phenomena to exist by their own characteristics as the reference of their names. Perfectly clear for the beginner, isn't it? Yeah? Okay. So, just a little bit, you know, when you t study tenants and when we get in, in the future volumes of this series... We'll get in more detail about this. Okay, so the, for the Chitta Madras, the self of phenomena, yeah, it holds subjects and objects to be different entities. That's one part of it. So they say that when we perceive something, yeah, there's the subject, the consciousness, like my visual consciousness perceiving uh, the white of the walls, okay? And there's the object, the white color of the walls. Yeah, usually the way we look at it is the object is there, we have a sense organ here, and then that uh, enables the visual consciousness to perceive the color. Chidramadran says, mm -mm, that's not the way it works. They say that the same latency in the mind, a latency is like a residual energy from something happening before. Yeah. So that that latency in the mind is the substantial cause for both the object, the white color, 
and the visual consciousness perceiving it. So they have a kind of non, you know, the, we usually say object, subject. For them, both of them come because of this latency. Yeah. So the object and subject are kind of fused together in a way. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing to play with in your life to begin to think, oh, everything I'm perceiving, my consciousness and that object come from the same substantial cause, which is a latency on my mind. Okay. And then that really, that can really help when you start seeing, uh, you know, things that you don't like. Ooh, that's ugly. Well, no, it's not ugly from its side because that object and my consciousness perceiving it arose from the same substantial cause. Okay. So that, that's one of the things for the cheetah madrans. Uh, that they say is the self of phenomena that's refuted. The other one is um, an ignorance that holds subjects and objects to be different entities. Okay, that was the first one. And the second one was holds phenomena to exist by their own characteristics as the reference of their names. What that means is that I call, you know, we call this a gong, and it means that there's something in it that exists by the characteristics of the gong that makes us call it a gong and not a giraffe. Okay? So there's something by its own characteristics inside this object that makes it so that we have to call it that name and see it that way. Okay? So they, they negate that too. Then for the Svatantrikas, yeah, the final root of samsara is the ignorance grasping the true existence of all phenomena. Now you're going to say, wait a minute, that sounds just like what the Prasangikas grasp. Hmm. For the Prasangikas, true existence and inherent existence are synonyms. For the Svatantrikas, they're different. Okay. So for the Svatantrikas, yeah, they negate true existence on the ultimate level and on the, the conventional level. Yeah. No, wait. The Prasangikas... I want to make sure I say this correctly. It's so many names. The Prasangikas say that uh, the two terms are synonymous, and so they negate true existence and, and inherent existence on both the ultimate level and on the conventional level. The Svatantrikas negate true existence uh, and inherent existence on the ultimate level but they say on the conventional level, things inherently exist. Okay. Prasangikas say conventionally, everything exists by mere designation. Svatantrikas say, no, that's not, how can things just be by mere designation? Because then I could call this a giraffe. 
Yeah, if it's just, it doesn't matter. If there's nothing on the side of the object that makes it that thing, then this is a giraffe, and this is a rhinoceros, and, you know, you can call, anything can be called anything. Yeah, because it's only a designation, it's only a name. So the Svatantrikas say, no, there's something in there that actually is the object. Yeah. And so that's, on some level, you know, when we get, when we start negating inherent existence and there's nothing you can find and your mind wants to find something, especially when you're looking for who you are and you can't find who you are, it's like, wait a minute, I'm in there somewhere. Okay. So you want something to hold on. So then Svatantra goes, oh, they say, yes, there is something that is me. Yeah, it's the mental consciousness. <sighs> you know, I'm there. Prasangika say, the mental consciousness is not who you are. Yeah. The mental consciousness is part of you. But it's not who you are. Yeah. What we call I is just a name designated in dependence upon the body and mind. And you go, oh, that sounds very good, but wait a minute. Are you saying that I'm not here? Yeah. Listen, I'm here. Yeah. There's something inside here that is me for sure. Yeah. I learned it in Sunday school. There's a soul. Yeah. Yeah. Sunday school can't be all wrong, can it? Yeah. There's a soul that's me that God created. It's got to be right. My Sunday school teachers taught me. They wouldn't lie. Well, they don't lie. They just believe the wrong thing. Okay. And that's what the whole thing is about. We're really checking, you know, a lot of things are asserted to exist, but what really exists and what doesn't exist. So Buddhism is kind of the the ultimate on, um, on uh, taking apart conspiracy theories and fake news, you know, except it does it in a way, it doesn't bother with, you know, the way they're doing it on TV. It goes right to the root, you know, what is something? Who am I? Who are other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How would the Prasangikas reply to that um, assertion that you could call an object whatever you wanted if it had no... Oh, Inherent existence on okay. a conventional level. The prosangikas say it's just by social convention. You know, before somebody puts the name gong on this, yeah, we could call it a giraffe if we all agreed to use that sound to refer to this. Yeah. But once a group of people call it a, a gong, for the purpose of just being able to communicate with each other on the conventional level, we use the word gong. Yeah. But there's nothing inside this thing that is a gong. Okay, your name's Kunga, right? Okay. Show me who Kunga is. Kunga, what? what? 
What this? You're waving your hand in air. Kunga's a bunch of air. Yeah, who's Kunga? Kunga's the parts. Which part? All of them. Well, then, then there's many Kungas. There's one Kunga here, and another Kunga there, another one there. Then you really have an identity crisis. <laughs> Yeah, which one are you? Okay, you can't point to one of them and say, that's who I am. You know, are you going to look and say, okay, yeah, this arm is me. So then who's speaking through the microphone? If this arm is me, then you have to say, the arm is speaking in the microphone. So... I'm Venable Lomsell, and I'm speaking right now. (laughs) Is that acceptable to say that? No, because we know on a conventional level, we've agreed to call one other combination of body and mind Lomsells and this combination of body and mind Kunga. But before we made that distinction, yeah, she could have been called Kunga, and then later you could have been called Lamsa. The combination. Okay. Uh, what's the combination of body and mind? Is the combination of body and mind something physical, or is it something mental? So then you have, we wind up with two kungas again. <laughs> or maybe one kunga that's half and half. Half of kunga is the body and half of kunga is the mind. Yes? No? <laughs> I mean, conventionally, it's you would say it's the combination of body and mind. But this body and mind, this specific combination, which is somehow different from hers. Yeah. But that combination is kunga. So then when when we say, uh, yeah, kunga is speaking in the microphone, then the combination of body and mind is speaking in the microphone. Really? The combination of, what's a combination of body and mind? How do you, do you put the body here and then you put the mind here, and then you stir them together so you have a combination. <laughs> yeah, like, like you're making cake. <laughs> yes? Okay, uh, I think she needs to go back to school. Um, <laughs> yeah, when, when, you know, you really look. Yeah, what are you going to identify? As who you are. And which body? Your body at the beginning of this class is different than the body now. So which body? Which mind? Your mind is different than at the beginning. Oh, you agree with that? Multiple personalities? Yeah, and multiple bodies. (laughs) Okay, so that's why it says merely designated. Merely means that none of the parts is inherently that object. Yeah? But, you know, we use the name Kunga because it's easy. 
instead of saying, okay, that that combination of body and mind, whatever that means, but the body is wearing uh, is maroon and and a uh, an orange chugu, uh, you know, that's sitting on a chair is kunga. And then people are going to look in, and there's one, two, three, four kungas that fit that description. So then we have to say, oh, and the kunga who... Uh, you know, we met her, her, her father. So the kunga that's the daughter of that father. Okay. And then, but then the people who haven't met your dad, uh, don't know who, who they're talking about. Okay. So it's just a thing. I mean, we give a name to things simply for, uh, for convenience. So you don't have to go around describing everything you see. Think, keep thinking about it. Yeah. So there's another person wearing maroon with a, a yellow chugu. Okay, she's wearing glasses. So there's one. Oh, there's a lot of those that fit that description. <laughs> I was going to say, one time in the teaching, you asked us, uh, or you asked Venerable Jampa, I think, when was Venerable Jampa born, right? Yeah. And she gives her birthday, and you're like, you weren't born Venerable Jampa, you were born Daniela. Yeah. So when was Venerable Jampa born, right? So it's like, who's speaking? Is it Christina or Kunga speaking? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And when were you born? (laughs) Uh, and who are you now and you know I mean we have multiple names don't we not just our ordained name and our given name but we probably have uh, lots of nicknames yeah nicknames from our family so you know then which who are we yeah what's your nickname Ali? Mm-hmm. How did they get that? From? This is short for Alisa. For Alisa. Okay, Alisa, Ali. Yeah, yeah. that works. Okay. Okay. <laughs> What's your nickname? Hannah. Hannah. Anna. Anna. Okay. Oh, but you're Anna Maria? Anna, Anna Maria. Yeah, Anna Maria. So they, Anna. Uh, okay. Yeah. So we, you know, we have many names, but you see, if, if, yeah, there had to be something in the person that warranted that name, then how could we have many names? Yeah. So that would be, yeah pretty difficult. So it's ah, it's just imputations. And what's very interesting about this is a lot of the stuff we argue about in society is we are arguing about what term to call to attach to something. Okay. Um, you know, when we just had the Kyle written, uh, Rittenhouse trial, the whole thing was about names. Do you call, do you say guilty or do you say innocent? 
which name do we attach? Yeah. So all this thing about what name? Yeah. And the same way, you know, one person calls you a jerk and one person says you're wonderful. So which one are you? Then you fight about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's names, isn't it? It's names. The term, you know, somebody says, you're wonderful. What does wonderful mean? Yeah. Somebody says, you're wonderful. What characteristics do you have to be wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Chris is actually coming from the other side, from the okay. person saying it. But they're if happy I, with them. Okay. So they say they're wonderful. But if they're not happy with them, they say they're a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but both terms, wonderful and jerk, don't give you any information about the person's behavior or their character. It only gives you information about how the person who's using the term thinks what that person thinks of the other person at that particular moment. Yeah, because we could say to some person, you're wonderful one moment, and five minutes later call them a jerk. And two minutes after that, tell, tell them they're wonderful again. Yeah, this is what is called romance. <laughs> yeah, and this is what all the the TV shows and movies are all about, aren't they? Yeah, but people call each other all sorts of names, but doesn't give you any information about what their characteristics are. Okay, so but we will fight about it. Somebody calls me a jerk, and I will say I am not a jerk. Although, I, it's okay for me to call myself a jerk. Yeah, but don't you try it. <laughs> yeah, I'm the only one who has the privilege of calling myself a jerk. No one else has that privilege. It's an incredible privilege, only reserved for one person. Don't try and run off with it. Okay. Sometimes we try to find the existence of the object or the person uh, because the function, no? We say, no, it has a function, then it exists, no? The ball, the, this uh, gong, etc. no? So it's, it is very interesting because if I use the, this thing in another way, is then where is the gong? Yes. Where the gong wo- yeah. went, no? Yeah, this this or, could be your lunch ball. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then if we start to think about the function and refute the function, then also disappear the thing, yeah. no? Even though it seems like very real, no? Yeah. And then the person also, no? So it could be a gong, it could be a lunch ball, it could be a hat. <laughs> no. It just, yeah. And you can see that there's none of those that are inherently in this thing. Yeah.
Okay. So now we've done one paragraph. Um, <laughs> let's, let's move on. Okay. So now prasangikas. So they identify a subtler ignorance as the root of samsara, the ignorance that grasps persons and phenomena to exist inherently. Okay? So that means that within the basis of designation of the person, for example, within the collection of body and mind, yeah, there is something that can be identified as I. Yeah. But as soon as you try and find that thing that is identified as I, it gets really murky and muddy and you can't find it. Yeah. Does that mean we don't exist? No. We're obvi- we obviously exist. We're sitting here. Okay, we exist. We don't exist in the way we think we exist. That's the problem. Okay. So when somebody calls you a name or when somebody says you're wonderful, either one of those, okay? Somebody says, you're wonderful. Or they say, you're a total jerk. Okay. Who are they talking to? Who's the I that they're referring to? Point, can you point out something that is that I when somebody says, you are wonderful or you're a total jerk? Who's that I? Is it your body? Is it your mind? Is it some amorphous thing that you can't point to but you feel exists? Is it a soul? What, what in the world is that I? You know, we feel it so strongly. We're so sure, you know, because we react, you know. You say you're wonderful. I go, oh, thank you. <laughs> I think you're wonderful too. Yeah. Why do I think that person's wonderful? Because they think I'm wonderful. No other reason. I mean, I'm a jerk. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> And I don't think clearly, so I think anybody who praises me must be wonderful. Yeah, that's the qualities of a jerk. Okay, so I'm actually a jerk. That person must be a jerk, too, if they think that I'm wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know... But I think they're wonderful too because they thought I'm I'm wonderful. So then they're not a jerk. They're wonderful. So which in the world are they? Yeah, well, it depends on, you know, how I feel in any particular moment. Yeah, totally up to my moods. Nothing to do with the other person. And yet, somebody says you're wonderful, we get a certain feeling inside. I am wonderful. Oh, somebody in all of samsara thinks I'm wonderful. And somebody says, you're a jerk. And they say, how dare you call me a jerk? I'm not a jerk. You know, or we go, oh, they call me a jerk. I must be really terrible. They're rejecting me. (laughs) Okay. 
And so who is that person that's reacting so strongly to the word jerk or wonderful? Who's reacting to that? Yeah? And what does wonderful mean and what does jerk mean? And then you really see that how nutty we are. You know, I mean, this is what ignorance is. We we just, uh, you know, glom on to some things that don't really have any meaning. Yeah. What are the attributes of being a jerk? Yeah, we all have different, you know, if you ask a Republican who's a jerk, they'll give you one thing. If you ask a Democrat who's a jerk, they'll tell you somebody else. Okay, so who's the real jerk? (laughs) Yeah? Depends who you're talking to and when you're talking to them. Yeah, because people will change parties. Okay. So the view of the personal identity, remember that one? We talked about it last week, so that's also grasping the person as inherently existent. The view of a personal identity that grasps the I and mine is preceded by and dependent on the ignorance grasping the aggregates as inherently existent. So before we grasp the person as inherently existent with the view of a personal identity, we first grasp the body and the mind as inherently existent. Yeah, because they're the basis of of designation. So here's a quote from Nagarjuna. As long as the aggregates, the body and mind, are grasped as inherently existent, so long thereby does the grasping of I exist. Furthermore, when the grasping of an inherently existent I exists, There is formative action, that's the second link, and from it there is also birth, which is the tenth link. Okay? So here it's a really nice verse that's kind of summarizing the whole thing. So grasping the aggregates as inherently existent gives rise to grasping the I that is merely designated Merely means it negates inherent existence. So grasping the aggregates as inherently existent gives rise to grasping the I that is merely designated independence on those aggregates. It grasps that I to exist inherently. So you have compounded ignorance. Okay, you have the ignorance grasping the aggregates, that then leads to the ignorance grasping the I. Both of them is inherently existent. Okay, and based on the view of a personal identity that grasps our I as inherently existent, we create karma that projects rebirth in samsara. So how did we get here? Simple answer is, yeah, there was grasping at, you know, the aggregates in a previous life, so grasping at the person, 
then had some kind of affliction arise, we created some kind of action that planted a seed on the consciousness, and we took rebirth. Okay? So in one way, you know, what, what lies behind our rebirth? Ignorance. In another way of looking at it, we have a fortunate rebirth. Having a human rebirth is incredibly fortunate, you know, and especially a precious human rebirth, which isn't just any old rebirth. It's a rebirth with the ability to an interest to think about the Dharma and study the teachings and make progress on the path, you know. So in that regard, we have an incredible rebirth, yeah, and we're, we're very fortunate. From another regard, the, you know, how did we get here? Well, it started with ignorance. Okay. So what's really interesting in all this is, you know, is we have to learn to think from different perspectives. Yeah. And this is where we often get caught up in our life. Yeah. We think something is one thing. And we think it must be that way for everybody. Yeah. And we think it must be that way for ourselves through all eternity. But, you know, here's a good example. One way you look at our life, it's, it originated from ignorance. Another way you look at our life, incredible fortune. Yeah. More fortunate than so many other living beings. And both of those qualities apply to the same life. Yeah? So wonderful and jerk can apply to the same person too. Yeah? Just at different times, depending on your mood, what you feel like calling them. Yeah? Nobody's inherently a jerk even though you may think that at the time you're mad at them. And nobody is inherently wonderful, even though you may think that at the time that you like them. <laughs> yeah? The, you know, the, the things that we are giving these labels to are changing all the time. And not only is the object changing, but our mind that is perceiving them is changing. Okay? So it's not like the person is one moment a jerk and then the person changes to become wonderful. It's our mind very often. The person can just be sitting there. And we remember one thing that happened in the past, ugh, jerk. We imagine another, we remember another thing that happened in the past, wonderful. Okay. So emotionally, we are like yo-yos. Yeah. Wonderful, awful, wonderful, awful. Yeah, you'd think that we would get sick of being a yo-yo after some time. But we think it's actually quite exciting. And so we make a drama out of it and sell it to Hollywood and make a lot of money. Yeah, that's basically. Or you can make a comedy out of it too. But what's the difference between a drama and a comedy? Really, when you look at our lives, is your life a drama or is your life a comedy? It depends on how you look at it, doesn't it? Yeah, 
one way of looking at our life. It's hilarious. You know, what we think, what we do is hilarious. In another way, you look at our lives, it is really serious. Can we hold both of those things on one object? When we grasp an inherent existence, we can't, because these two things seem contradictory. Yeah, we want to grasp one or the other. Yeah, when we have a big mind, we can see things from multiple uh, angles, yeah. and that enables us to understand so much more, because we aren't locking ourselves into. You know, it's got to be this. Yeah, it's got to happen this way. Okay. Yeah. So we were talking today about making the uh, the spreadsheet for what is put out at breakfast because there is jam and jelly and fruit butter and vegetable butter or vegetable something. Oh, pumpkin butter. Where do you put that? Yeah, we're, yeah, and pumpkin butter. <laughs> Does pumpkin butter have butter in it? Why do they call it pumpkin butter? Yeah, but why, you know, it isn't butter. Why call something butter that isn't butter? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has, it has a trait like butter, but it's not butter. Yeah, but we give it the name butter. Yeah, a pum- yeah, we know a pumpkin is a fruit, and a tomato is a fruit, and a squash is a fruit. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So we were discussing how we have to, you know, uh, have only one of them out for breakfast. And since different people like different things, then we better establish a rota on which one we put out at breakfast on a certain day so that everybody at least once in, how many options do we have? Once every four days, they may get something they like, except some people don't like any of the four, so then those people are going to be unhappy. Okay, but, you know, we block ourselves into ways of thinking that are so narrow. Yeah, and that's why you get, well, you know, I'm not going to do the vacuuming. I'm, it's not my name on the rota for Wednesday. Yes, your name's on the rota for Wednesday. Here it is. Look. What is Wednesday? <laughs> when you wake up in the morning, is there a di- does Wednesday morning look different than Tuesday morning? No, you have a clock without the name Wednesday. <laughs> you have a clock that just, you know. So, so you know, I only vacuum on Wednesdays. I don't vacuum on Tuesdays. Yeah. See, it has your name on it, not my name. Yeah, we just lock ourselves like in like this. And we label vacuuming as Horrible. Why does vacuuming have to be horrible? Yeah, what's wrong with vacuuming? What's wrong with dusting? 
Yeah. No, seriously, look how we label things. And depending how we label them, we, we react to them. But when you really examine, yeah, what is distasteful about vacuuming? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going like this. What is so terrible about this? <laughs> See, yeah, vacuuming. <laughs> yeah. If somebody had was giving every time you went out like this was giving you a hundred dollar bill, you would do a lot. And it wouldn't be at all distasteful. You know? So why are we labeling vacuuming as something bad that I don't want want to do? Yeah. Well, because I'm educated and educated people don't vacuum. Huh? Who made that rule? Oh, I did. (laughs) And it applies only to me. Yeah, other educated people need to vacuum. Yeah. Why? Because I said so. But I don't need to because I'm educated. What in the world does educated mean? Well, I have a piece of paper. Look! Yeah, this is my diploma. This this piece of paper means I'm educated. Really? A piece of paper, it means you're educated? Yeah? How many people do you know who have pieces of paper that are really uneducated? (laughs) Yeah? And just because a person doesn't have a piece of paper, or they have another piece of paper? (laughs) Yeah, both of them are made out of paper. Yeah. So why is this person with this piece of paper better than that person with that piece of paper? They're both pieces of paper. Yeah. And those pieces of paper only have meaning because we chose to give give them meaning. If you are stranded on a desert island without any toilet paper, these two are equal. (laughs) Yeah. And they have nothing whatsoever to do with education. And who's smart and who's not smart and who, who should vacuum and who shouldn't vacuum. Do you you see what I'm getting at? How it's our mind that constructs all of this. And then we get agitated by what we construct. And we get agitated when other people's construction isn't the same as ours. Okay. So... Yeah, the more we understand this, I think the more we can relax. It's like, well, who cares what color, what kind of jam they put out or what kind of butter? I mean, pumpkin butter, okay. So they're calling pumpkin butter. Then you can call butter pumpkin. So you have a butter dish with a pumpkin on it. (laughs) Yeah. 
And people say, I want butter on my potato. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Anyway, it's really something to think about, and especially in terms of how much we, we lock ourselves into things and make ourselves miserable because of all of this. Yeah? And make other people miserable. Okay. Uh, ignorance afflicts transmigrating beings because it obscures seeing the right view that directly perceives the emptiness of inherent existence. So that's why ignorance is a problem. Okay, now next section. How ignorance leads to the creation of karma. So we're, ta- we're talking, we're communicating using all these words, right? Yeah. And we have definitions that we hold somewhat in common for all these words so we can communicate with each other. Yeah. But if you look, you know, ignorance, what are you going to pinpoint as ignorance? What are you going to pinpoint as karma? None of these things can you pinpoint and draw a circle around and say, this is it, and that's it, you know? Yeah? Conventional existence is is very messy because you can give two names to the same thing. Yeah? And like the wonderful and jerk. Okay. So the treasury of knowledge speaks of two motivations for an action. So here, the, this is according to treasury of knowledge. Okay, there's another uh, way of describing the two motivations that will come later. Okay, so two motivations. The first one is the causal or initial motivation, and it's the first motivation to act. So it may occur a long time before the action is done. And the immediate motivation occurs at the time of the action. So ignorance of the ultimate nature, so ignorance grasping inherent existence, is the causal motivation for all polluted karma in general and for all formative actions that project rebirth in samsara in particular. Okay, so one way, the causal or initial motivation, it's the first one that arose, the first primal thing in the mind that is going to lead to an action. So the first one, one way to describe it, is ignorance, grasping an inherent existence. Then the immediate motivation occurs at the time of the action, so ignorance of the ultimate nature, according to Prasangika's ignorance grasping inherent existence, is the causal motivation for all polluted karma in general and for all formative actions that project rebirth in samsara in particular. And then the immediate motivation is the motivation at the time of doing the action. Okay. So you have ignorance that happened at some point, then you have 
you get around to your actual motivation for the action. When the immediate motivation, which occurs um, subsequent to the causal motivation, is an affliction such as attachment, anger, jealousy, or arrogance, the formative karma will be non-virtuous. Okay, so you have ignorance itself in view of the the perishing aggregates. Those two mental factors are neutral. Yeah, when when they give rise to, you know, attachment, anger, jealousy, arrogance, something like that, yeah, then that's when you produce the the formative action, the karma, and and those particular mental factors are are non-virtuous, so the karma is non-virtuous. When the immediate motivation is virtuous, such as faith, integrity, or compassion, the formative karma will be virtuous. Okay? So that's why in, in Buddhism, you know, we say our motivation is the most important part of our action, not how we look to other people, not what other people think about us or say about us. Is what our motivation is. Okay, that's what's important. In short, first link ignorance and the view of the personal identity are always neutral. The virtuous or non-virtuous mental factors that arise after them determine the ethical value of the actions that follow. Okay? As the initial motivation... First link ignorance is the principal driving force that leads to formative karma. Distorted conceptions may arise after that ignorance. Okay, so which would be things grasping the impermanent as as permanent, grasping what is by nature dukkha as happiness, grasping the unattractive as attractive, Okay, and the selflessness that has a, uh, so, and the selfless as having a coarse self. Okay, so those are distorted conceptions, sometimes called inappropriate attention, that, um, that comes after the ignorance. Okay. Or with some, here it's called distorted attention. So distorted attention that exaggerates the good or bad qualities of an object may also arise. Yeah. Because we exaggerate. Yeah. Due to these distorted conceptions, the immediate motivation, such as the ignorance of karma and its effects, cover coupled with other afflictions arise, okay, if it's going to be a negative karma. With attachment, so you have the ignorant, the ignorance, then the distorted attention or distorted conceptions, yeah, and then the different afflictions that arise, and then due to the afflictions, we start getting involved in, uh, in non-virtuous actions. Okay. So when we have attachment, it starts out mentally. We start out planning how we can get what we want. Okay. Then we connive and manipulate to get the objects of our desire. 
So we may say something to somebody to get them to give us something. We may act in a certain way to get, you know, the object that we desire. Yeah. Uh, or in this case, uh, we then lie or steal to make something ours. Yeah. I, de- I desire, uh, uh, yeah, I desire some money, so I make up some story about why it's really my money, and I take it. Yeah, today or, or sometime recently, in one of these big mega churches in some other state, I forget which one, they had a robbery some years ago that took like $600,000 robbed from the church. A plumber was fixing the toilet and took the toilet out of the wall and the wall opened up and all these envelopes full of money and checks fell out. And they're seeing that it looks like all that stuff that was stuffed in the wall was stuff that was stolen from the church. They don't know anything more than that yet. Okay, why would you put checks in a wall? Because... <laughs> Because the checks, after a certain while, you can't cash them, you know. So whoever did that, that person was a jerk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. But the plumber was incredibly scrupulously honest, and he found all of that. He didn't keep anything, and he turned it back to the church. Yeah. So you've got to really praise him for that. My goodness. Okay? But what we're getting at here, okay, that plumber could have had ignorance, yeah, and then uh, seeing the, uh, you know, what uh, that what isn't attractive as attractive, uh, these pieces of paper with that, with ink on them as like really special and then create, had desire for them, and then just stuck a few of them in his pocket. Plumbers have lots of pockets. So he could have done that, okay? But he didn't. So it didn't create that negative karma. He, he created some virtuous karma. Okay. Yeah. So we may lie or steal to get what we want. There's, we we are very creative to get what we want. Yeah, extremely creative. When our desires are thwarted, what happens? Anger. Okay, anger, and that anger develops into malice, a mental non-virtue. And then what do we do? We plan and act out retaliatory actions, mistakenly believing that anger protects us. Okay, so we've exaggerated the bad qualities of someone or something because they thwarted my happiness. Okay, so I have a right to be angry at them, and my anger is going to protect me. I don't know what it's going to protect you from, but this is what we think. And, you know, and then we retaliate in some way. Okay? So attachment and anger in the above examples are not a distinct link. Some sages consider them part of the first link, 
which is ignorance. Others say they are part of the second link, formative actions. They're, they're kind of one and a half in between first and second, yeah? So the causal motivation of the first link, ignorance, does not necessarily lead to non-virtuous karma. When the immediate motivation is free of the ignorance of karma and its effects, which is a different kind of karma, yeah, the, the karma that's the first link is the grasping at true existence. It's not the karma that's, uh, that's, it's not the ignorance that, that misunderstands karma. Okay. But when the immediate motivation is free from the ignorance of karma and its effects, and as a virtuous mental state, the subsequent action will be virtuous. Examples are making offerings with faith, protecting life with compassion, and restraining from the ten non-virtues. So we can do a virtuous karma, grasping ourself, the action, and the object as inherently existent. Okay? And that's still virtuous, even though there's self-grasping involved and grasping at the phenomena, at phenomena also involved. Okay? So the above is the technical description of causal and immediate motivations. Another way of using these terms is broader. Okay. So here, in this broader way, causal motivation refers to the initial virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral thought to do an action sometime in the future. So it's not just ignorance. It could be any thought to, to do an action. And immediate motivation is the intention at the time of doing the, the action. Okay. So in the, in the morning, I think, okay, um, yeah, today is Tuesday. It's the day that we have strawberry, uh, jam. Okay. Which I really like. So I'm going to get to breakfast early so that I can make sure I get strawberry jam before the bottle finishes, okay? Now, supposedly, if the jam finishes before everybody's gone through the line, they're going to put out another jar of strawberry jam. That is the policy written in the policy book. But this morning, there's no second bottle of strawberry jam. We don't have any strawberry jam. Nobody offered it to us. Yeah? So they're pu putting out pumpkin butter. <laughs> <laughs> so butter with pumpkin mixed inside. Ooh! That's not the way it's supposed to be. We have a policy that is supposed to be the same kind of stuff as the first jar. So I was all, you know, ready to, I was creating the karma of desire, getting there early, anticipating, getting my strawberry jam, okay, so lots of desire in there and creating that, that kind of karma. It's a mental karma because I haven't gotten the jam yet. 
And there's pumpkin butter on Tuesday morning instead of strawberry jam. And I'm <laughs> mad. Okay. Because all the rules got broken. Yeah. I don't care that we only eat the food that's offered to us. It was supposed to be strawberry jam. It was supposed to be here. And it's not. And I bet, I bet Venerable Sultram took it and she's hiding it somewhere. She can't. She can't like strawberry jam. She doesn't. Oh, she can't. She doesn't like it. Oh, okay. She likes the pumpkin. But she took the strawberry jam so she could exchange it with somebody else's pumpkin butter and then have a whole jar of pumpkin butter to herself. Okay. Yeah. But I'm not accusing her of anything. <laughs> okay. But the person who wanted the strawberry jam, which she is hiding, <laughs> so that she could actually get pumpkin butter by, you know, doing a, an under-the-cover deal, under-the-table deal. <laughs> yeah. Because Venerable Chuni's holding on to the pumpkin butter. Yeah. So she's going to trade with Venerable Sultram, you know. And then the rest of us, what are we stuck with? A grape jelly. <laughs> <laughs> A grape jelly. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, they serve that on precept days where we don't have breakfast, so that's okay. <laughs> okay. So then I'm mad, yeah, and then I create negative karma, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you think we're, I mean, the f examples are funny. Watch your own mind. <laughs> you will find these examples in living technicolor in your own life, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm all ready for lunch. And I go there, and there's this delicious-looking soup that has beans in it. <laughs> and I go, like, from a distance, it looks like good soup, ready to get it. I see the beans. Why can't these people cook the soup and add the beans at the end? Take, take out some soup for people who don't like beans, then throw the beans in at the end. It's not that hard. Can't these people think? Yeah? And I'm mad because I want this delicious soup, and I really don't want to spend the whole lunch hour fishing out the beans. <laughs> Okay, yeah. So, I mean, this is our life, isn't it? Watch what you get irritated at, you know. But you see, I'm the abbess, so I'm not supposed to show any of that. Because <laughs> then my reputation is ruined. Okay, so, okay. It's delicious soup. 
I rejoice everybody else gets to have it. I'll have mashed potatoes again. (laughs) Yeah, mashed potatoes with... With... What? With, no, what are the noodles, The ma- like macaroni? Yeah, yeah. And and glutinous rice, you know. <laughs> I'll have mashed potatoes, glutinous rice, and, and uh, macaroni. <laughs> okay, that sounds delicious, but I'm a renunciate. So I very gracefully go through the line. <laughs> no, I get to the the uh, the dessert table, and it's empty. <laughs> Nobody made dessert, or they make what do they make for desserts? Pudding. Pudding goes in the category with beans and cabbage for me. (laughs) Okay, so, I mean, yeah, we laugh, but really this is what goes on in our mind, isn't it? Yeah. But, of course, we preserve our our reputation. Yeah. We look like very good monastics, renunciates. Yes, I'm satisfied and content with food and drink, just like the sign says. <laughs> okay. And I take my macaroni and glutinous rice and mashed potatoes <laughs> and put it on the table. And then I go to the the, the uh, uh, snack counter. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I hit the cookies. <laughs> Yeah. Except they don't even have the kind of cookies I like. What did I do to deserve this? Yeah. What did I do to deserve this? Why am I asking that question? I know. I've studied karma. (laughs) I know what I did to deserve this. And I'm creating more of the above right now by continuing to complain about it. Okay, let's see if we can finish this section. Okay, so in this case, both the causal and immediate motivations for an action are usually virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral, although sometimes they may differ. And usually neutral actions, they don't produce uh, a propelling karma. They aren't strong enough, yeah. As part of our practice of training in bodhicitta, upon awakening each morning, we generate contrived bodhicitta. Today, I will do all actions with the aspiration to attain full awakening for the benefit of sentient beings. So this is the causal motivation for all of our actions that day until we go to lunch. Okay. However, we often forget our altruistic intention and the immediate motivation for many of our actions is attachment, animosity, jelly, jealousy. (laughs) (laughs) 
jealousy, and so on. In this case, the immediate motivation determines the ethical value of the action, which is non-virtuous. So what your motivation is at the time you're doing the action is the key one that's going to determine it. Nevertheless, so even though we may have generated bodhicitta in the morning and then, you know, complain the whole way through lunch um, and then complain because we, we're on vacuuming and then complain because, you know, we can always find something to complain about. Okay. So we spent the rest of the day complaining. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless, generating bodhicitta in the morning is worthwhile because it lessens the strength of our destructive actions and reminds us to purify afterwards. In addition, yeah, it plants seeds on our mind stream so that one day we will have uncontrived, spontaneous bodhicitta. Sometimes the force of our compassionate motivation in the morning stays with us during the day, transforming many of our actions into virtue. Yeah, high bodhisattvas, causal and immediate mo motivations for all actions are the same. It's always something virtuous. Okay. So one uh, action or mental state cannot be the cause of both samsara and nirvana. In general, any action that is instigated by ignorance is the cause of samsara, even though the motivation may be virtuous such as a similitude of the determination to be free from samsara, a similitude of the compassionate wish to help somebody, you know, something like that. Actions sustained by the power of the basis, okay? This is a special kind of karma that is virtuous due to the power, not of our motivation, but of the basis upon which we are acting, which is a holy object. Okay, the power of the basis refers to actions involved holy objects. So there are exceptions to this. And it's said by the power of the holy object, whatever action we do is going to implant virtuous seeds in our mind. So they say, even you get mad at a bodhisattva, something good is going to come out of it, you know, because of the power of the object. I think you're also going to create a ton of negative karma by criticizing a bodhisattva, but by the power of that object, something good is going to come to you too. But also, you know, when we make offerings on the altar, uh, when we chant, when we're, you know, studying the texts or whatever, listening to teachings, yeah, by the power of the holy object, no matter what our, you know, immediate motivation is, there's good seeds getting planted in the mind. So that's why, yeah, we like to chant so that the kitties can, can hear the chants and the bugs can, you know, and that's why, uh, you know, when you carry the kitties around, hold them in front of the altar so they can see the holy objects or circumambulate them, things like that. You know, it helps their mind. It helps our mind. Actions done with faith in the three jewels, such as making offerings, bowing, and meditating on the excellent qualities of the three jewels, are virtue concordant with liberation. Okay? Because, they, because of the power of the basis.
Okay, so we're going to stop here. We went kind of late tonight. But uh, think about this and, and watch it in your own life. Yeah, that's when it really gets interesting. When you watch what's going on in your own mind and what you're saying and doing. <laughs>